Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? How the music can free her whenever it starts and it's magic. If the music is groovy, it makes you feel happy like an old time movie. If I sing anymore, it's probably copyright infringement. But I just wanted to make sure that you know who we're talking to today. It's the guy who wrote that song. We're talking to John Sebastian from Love and Spoonful Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame inductees in 2000. So pretty early because that's how influential they were in the 1960s in the folk rock and the jug band scene. They were one of the big ones. That's why I'm so excited to talk to John. I've been waiting my whole life to talk to John Sebastian. They also sing a lot of songs, frankly, that people know these days because they're in commercials like Daydream is in a commercial. Summer in the city, you know, pop down, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. We're going to get to the meaning behind Do You Believe in Magic and actually how uh, John Sebastian's brother is the one who came up with the concept of Summer in the City. And also, what's crazy, John, uh, how he accidentally played at Woodstock. We're going to talk about that and what it was like to be at Woodstock, what he was doing while Jimi Hendrix was playing the most famous and iconic guitar solo ever of the Star Spangled Banner. And also, we're going to play a game that I came up with that I plan to play with all guests that we have on who are musical guests which is called Were They Nice? Where I ask if people that they knew were actually nice, such as because he played with Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix, so we're going to get into them as well. Um, One thing I will say, and I probably shouldn't do this, but I like to be totally honest. Um, To simplify things, we did this over Zoom, so the quality of my microphone might not be as good as you're listening to right now. But I wouldn't post something if I didn't think it was good enough. So I think it's totally fine. And John Sebastian is just an absolute delight. So please welcome and get excited for Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, John Sebastian. But first, here's Jungle Fiction. And we now welcome Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, music icon, and auto harp ambassador, John <laughs> Sebastian. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. And John, because like I told you, this is for people who are obsessed with the decade that were they weren't alive for, um, I want to start here. What were the yeah. 60s like? Boy, that's a huge question. <laughs> it's all uh, I ever want to know. Yes, um, and uh, remember that uh, uh, the, the beginning of the 60s wasn't really the 60s. We, I think, established that frequently. Uh, but by about 1962, certainly I can speak for what was happening in Greenwich Village because a tremendous change really was happening there. Uh, and it consisted of a transition from a mostly Italian neighborhood with uh, a few espresso bars and some good Italian restaurants to uh, several really cool clubs and later basket houses, which were uh, clubs that that didn't pay you, but uh, according to the cabaret laws, you could pass the hat. So that that was what we were passing a basket. Wait a minute, in the Creek Alley, the mamas and the papas say in a coffee house Sebastian sat, and after every number he passed the hat. Is that what that's referring to? 
yes. Uh, but they, they, because they were not from fucking New York, <laughs> they wouldn't know this stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah it, it <laughs> So, so yeah, they, they, they were, they were guessing cause they, they probably played basket houses somewhere, but not in New York. I would have noticed Michelle. That, that's true. That, that's true. Uh, and obviously, uh, your bandmate at the Mugwumps, Danny did notice her as did John. Um, so you were at NYU and then yeah. you dropped out to pursue music, which I can't imagine going home to my parents and telling them I'm dropping out of college, they would have killed me. But for you, your father was a musician. So was he cool with it when you dropped out of college? No. No, he wasn't. But, the, but, but there's, uh, there is truth to what you say, that I was a very lucky boy in that I did have artistic parents who did know that you could make a living playing music. Uh, you know, maybe a guy whose dad was a butcher or a baker might go, how is he ever going to, with a guitar, he's going to make a living? Uh, but really, dad's thing was simply that he wanted me to have enough education that I could get along. And I really wasn't showing a lot of aptitude on that count. Uh, uh, very dyslexic and so people would always, I'd always get those uh, report cards that say, we find John to be an intelligent boy. We don't understand why he gets a 12 on an ancient <laughs> history test. It's always a but. <laughs> I mean, you know, as somebody who's in, in television, I also empathize with that where there's these very rigid lines of what you need to be good at to succeed in school. And they don't always foster people who are creative because that's just math and literacy. That's just not what you were trying to do. It, it's true. It's true. And I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. If somebody, you know, if the, the college, uh, uh, you know, the guy that tries to find you, uh, uh, not employment, but like you point you towards a career, uh, I couldn't come up with anything more honest than I want to be a shepherd. <laughs> Isn't that from uh, Good Will Hunting when he says, you're the shepherd? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd already been to Italy for, you know, uh, you a large portion years. of my life. And that, that life that the shepherds, well, you know, they'd, they'd come by with those sheep and it looked kind of, kind of cool. I know you lived in Italy for five years. So are you saying that you legitimately wanted to be a shepherd? That all this music could have never happened because you enjoyed sheep? No, it was just <laughs> that it was an ex I was exposed to it living in somewhat rural Italy. I'm, I'm outside of town. Uh, most American kids would get to be in Rome and via Perioli. I'm outside of Maiano, a very small town outside of Fiesole, outside of Florence. So I was getting exposed to uh, the countryside, farming. I, I was, I, occasionally I'd get to drive the oxen if the farmer was right there to give me a whack if I did something wrong. <laughs> so when you decided to, to drop out of school, a lot of musicians will describe like, a seminal moment where they hear a kind of music and they're like, oh, I need to go do that. Like, 
Uh, I know I remember on the documentary about the band, like Eric Clapton saying he heard the band and then like immediately wanted to leave Cream because he knew he wanted to do like, were you, did you see somebody like Bob Dylan or somebody else where you like, oh, I could make this folk thing work? No, no. Uh, my, my background in folk music, I think, preceded a lot of the guys and gals that uh, I would later meet in, in Greenwich Village. And that might be because uh, a friendship that my father had with Burl Ives, uh, a friendship that eventually had, had Woody Guthrie as a kind of a house guest for a couple of weeks. Uh, so, uh, I, and I, I, you know, I was seeing that kind of 1940s folk singers and folk singing uh, quite, quite, was that was, that was part of my life. I'm, I'm living on Washington Square. It's where the, the folk scare really happened. I know you were also uh, a mentee of Mississippi John Hurt. Is, is he, I'm not that familiar with him. I just, I was reading about that. Is he a little more bluesy? And that's kind of where the Love and Spoonful became kind of bluesy and folky at the same time. Is that the other side of that? So actually, I think it'd be worth your while to give a listen to John Hurt yes, because sir. it's called, I think they call it a Piedmont style of guitar playing. It involves the thumb uh, keeping the beat uh, with, uh, on, on two octaves and your other three fingers, as, uh, as John Hurt instructed me. Those other fingers, they just follow along. Hmm. That's awesome. So yeah, so I was exposed to John, even though he's from Mississippi, it was more of a of a Piedmont style. Uh, Etta Baker is the, one of the few other people I can readily think of that uh, really had that style. Yeah, but so I was getting exposed to a lot of this stuff. And don't forget that you know, asking about the 60s, one of the things that was happening was that so many great blues men and women were still alive and they weren't in bad shape. They just weren't wildly famous at that moment. You know, uh, they were going to have to wait for this generation of kids who had sort of gone, you know, I'm not that crazy about uh perry como or <laughs> i like perry como but but uh, you know i know what you mean i know something with the drums <laughs> move yeah yeah I, yeah we were kind of phasing out of the crooner era and we were going more into into rock and frankly yeah. music that was in, inspired by people who were black by by blues musicians by people like chuck berry and little richard and then it became chess records and howlin wolf and people like that. So did you ever That's get to right. meet those guys like that in New York? Were they just around all the time? Willie Dixon and I uh, got to play on a television show. Uh, I uh, was rehearsing with him one day. Uh, and then I, uh, then I had to do, a, a, I guess it was, a, I think it was a Sunday show. It's the, a show that went on Sunday night. And I had a Saturday gig. So they were rehearsing me and the band uh, on Friday. And I explained, I, I can't be there Saturday. And uh, so 
I guess the word hadn't gotten to Willie because uh, when I didn't show up on Saturday, I got the best compliment of my life. Willie Dixon saying, where's my white boy? <laughs> yeah, because uh, these were, uh, and the, com the, the comical thing was uh, all the players w were, were black, uh, you know, uh, African-American guys. And uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was a kind of a surprise to be singled out as kind of more the direction he was trying to go. It's it's just so interesting because I don't think people look at Love and Spoonful's music and think like, oh, this has some influence from some famous black artists. A lot of people will think of it more folky when in reality the jug band component of it is just as much there. Well, understand that I was as enamored of Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis as anybody. And it would be a long time before I figured out that this little section of Brownsville, Tennessee and, and uh, Louisiana that had these, uh, these kind of pockets that would become uh, the first generation of rock and rollers, Carl Perkins. Uh, right in there. Um, so uh, it was a wonderful thing to to be a little bit of a part of. I did get to meet Chuck Berry because uh, we would occasionally have overlapping shows. And by that, I mean, that was a time when there were lots of shows that had five, six acts, you know. You were there for the day or the afternoon or late into the evening. And there was this one festival we nicknamed the Swamp Festival because it was, wow, it was buggy and was muddy hot. and really difficult to deal with uh, outside of New Orleans. And uh, my wife, Catherine, was with me and it was a kind of a marvelous moment for Catherine. <laughs> she, she really looked fantastic. And uh, she runs up to me. I'm sitting next to Chuck and asks me a question. I forget what it was and turns around and heads towards the stage. And as she's walking towards the stage, Chuck takes a long look and turns to me and says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I think it's one of the best compliments <laughs> Catherine ever, ever got. <laughs> I think what's so interesting about hearing these stories is that, I mean, like when Do You Believe Magic came out, you were 21. So like in this story, how old were you? Probably, uh, let's see, uh, uh, 23. And is, is, is it wild like to have to like think back about like all these moments in, in your life that were the most important were like 50 years ago is it like you have it's to draw remarkable. them all the time <laughs> yeah i'm glad i got something to do i'd get nervous <laughs> and you made it work and i don't think i mean obviously people who are big love and spoonful fans and john sebastian fans would know that at first you were in the mugwumps which had obviously you and, and zali who formed love and spoonful together but then also mama cass cass elliott and dennis doherty so how did you get to meet them and then form a band with them? 
I had gotten my first uh, accompanist's job with a gentleman named Valentine Pringle, who was a protege of Harry Belafonte. Uh, and by a series of coincidences, I sort of became part of this little enclave that, that uh, Belafonte had up in the 50s. And uh, I was uh, frequently, uh, frequently uh, getting these little jobs. But the, the, what happened really was uh, Valentine got a job in uh, Washington, D.C. at a club called The Shadows owned coincidentally eventually uh, uh, it was owned then by a guy who would eventually be the spoonfuls manager but we of course didn't know that before that happened uh after a week or two he had to fire me from the uh, mugwumps because i was being a bad influence on zalyanovsky and it's true i was playing things and yanovsky would pick up on whatever i was playing and He'd play it back at me, and it wasn't the arrangement. See, this was a band that was trying to be in rock and roll, but they 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 didn't. They weren't writing their own material. They sang their butts off, but they didn't have several. They they didn't really play uh, much. I mean, Zolly was great, but uh, there there wasn't. Uh, uh, that kind of band continuity that you look for. So their mugwumps thing died shortly thereafter. The sequence was, I worked for Valentine. I went back to New York. They called me up and they said, hey, could you come back? and maybe play harmonica for us. And uh, could you bring us a pound of pot? I said, <laughs> that was, sure, that I'll, was the currency. <laughs> that was the currency. And indeed, I did uh, take them some. And uh, that band had a, a short life, mostly in Washington, because when it got into the big world of rock and roll, and like the Peppermint Lounge, they weren't going to be fascinated by Anafia stole a stallion, stole it from the misty waters. No, no, no. So that was what happened to the uh, the Mugwumps eventually. But, you know, it then it made me and Zolly pal up more, more intensely. And eventually, of course, Cass would talk her way into uh, John Phillips's group, and, and that would become the Mamas and Papas. So I know the Mamas and Papas, one of the reasons they didn't end up working out was because Mama Cass was really in love with Dennis Doherty. Did you, did you already get a sense of that that early on? Oh, yeah, that wasn't, there, there wasn't any secret there. Um, but I mean, remember Cass, you know, she was also in love with John Lennon. <laughs> oh, really? And, and in fact, John Lennon, when asked uh, about uh, the mamas and papas, said, I like the big one. 
No way. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, 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 that didn't help because now she was really fixated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So you, you guys start Love and Spoonful and obviously you right off the gates, you believe in magic 1965 and you're out and you're zero to a hundred. How long had you had that song saved up? Cause you, it just immediately you emerged. Uh, and, and not really very long. The Spoonful had been very much more of a jug band rock and roll band uh, as we were playing the clubs, uh, you know, the, they're folk clubs after all. Uh, and uh, it was a while before we got fired from the folk clubs <laughs> and then had to go and work a club that was actually more of a rock and roll club. And, and we learned a lot. But uh, uh, Do You Believe in Magic happened uh, one night after we had done a show at a pretty folky club, and we were used to not getting much of a reception. It was mainly, at that stage, it was still old Italian men that would come in for a coffee and be annoyed by the loud music. So uh, the spoonful notice a young woman in the back of the club and she's dancing and she's dancing our way. It's not the Lindy Bop or, you know, it's the way people began to dance in the sixties. And uh, I took that vision home with me. Uh, and the song really came out of that. Her jitterbug? Yeah, just seeing her dance and, and, uh, and feeling like it's the moment. Now, here it is. You know, we just, we're going to wait another week and we'll have at least two dozen girls from Queens. <laughs> I, I, be the best. <laughs> I think my favorite part about that song is when you say, um, makes you feel happy like an old time movie. And then to me, in 2021, I'm like thinking about movies that came out in the 60s. And then I realized that like an old time movie in 1965 is like Casablanca, I guess. It's weird to think of no, that as an old time movie. No, no, no. It's Charlie Chaplin. Oh, it's, man. Uh, 20 uh, years yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> got to get older. back. Silent who, movies. Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so more 1920s movies. Okay, I understand. Yeah, Keaton. yeah. Okay. Really? No, because in fact, uh, my dad was, he had a great sense of what to take a 15-year-old kid to. And uh, we went to Chaplin movies. We went to uh, um, most of the famous comic duos of that era. Uh, and that was really, that was the, the core of it, really. Uh, that was who I was referring to. That's awesome. And obviously my did that, my dad did that too. And that's why I'm sitting here hosting this podcast. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <Here we are. laughs> he um, fixed you real good, didn't he? <laughs> he sure did. I actually, <laughs> speaking of my dad, and this is off topic, but I, he is a huge fan of yours. And I asked him to record a voice message for you so he could tell you how much you mean to him. Would it be okay if oh, I played that for you? I, I'd be touched. This is from my dad, Mark, which is your brother's name, so they have the same name. 
Uh, I hope, hope, hope you can hear it okay. Hi, John. This is Mark New. I'm Danny's dad, and what a treat to be able to speak with you today. So glad Danny is interviewing you for his podcast. I guess I've been a super fan of yours for a very long time. Not quite as far back as the Mugwumps, but certainly the beginning of the Love and Spoonful, and just loved your music growing up on Kama Sutra, and then all your solo work that was on Reprise, especially John B. Sebastian. I wore out that album. I wore out Red Eye Express. And then uh, Cheapo Cheapo Productions presents Real Live John Sebastian. What a treat. Every time I went into New York City as a kid, I think of Summer in the City. And um, love the two question mark songs, of course. Do you believe in magic? And did you ever have to make up your mind? And a particular favorite, I Had a Dream, which to me is your Imagine. Um, in any event, I just want to say hi and close this out by saying when Danny was two, he wouldn't remember this, but we went to the Mohonk Mountain House in New Paul's, and appearing the first night was your great friend, Artie Traum, who paid tribute to you, and that was a treat as well. In any event, uh, thank you so much for all the music. It's corny when they say you were the music soundtrack of my life, but I would have to say in this case that's just absolutely accurate. Thank you. Take care. Hope you're well. Bye now. Ah, oh, that's really nice. That's terrific. What can I say? Uh, I'm, I'm delighted. And you guys both have the good radio voice, too. <laughs> that's what I got <laughs> from the big, deep voice. Um, well, well, thank you. I, I appreciate you listening to that. I, I just knew it mean a lot to him, so I wanted to do it. Uh, okay, so I, I want to get back to your, your music career. So what I didn't know until I did a lot of research for this podcast is that your brother had the initial conception of Summer in the City, which was your only number one hit. How did he That's approach right. you with that song? Oh, you've got it right. And it's a, it's a delight to be interviewed by a guy who did enough research to know that. Uh, yes, what happened was Mark had written, uh, he, he was writing songs, uh, you know, uh, 16 and and coming up with tunes and uh, would occasionally play them for me. And he played something he'd written called Summer in the City. And it uh, went, summer in the city, you know it's going to get hot. The shadows of the buildings were the only shady spot. But at night, it's a different world. I go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What? Give, give me that part again. And so the outgrowth of it was that I wanted to make the very front of it uh, have more tension so that when Mark's wonderful release of But at Night It's a Different World came on, it would really be like, whoa, I didn't see this coming. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, the, so I, I just wrote a couple of verses. And in fact, Steve Boone, our bass player, had had a fragment forever. And we'd all go, it's not a tune. <laughs> Steve, stop with that. It's not a chorus. It's not a verse. Forget it. Of course. So, so we, we work on the tune. We get to this place where we realize we need another thing of some kind. And 
my idea is traffic. Let's let's do like um, like American in Paris, where the orchestra plays traffic. So with that as a sort of a lead off, uh, we found that Steve Boone's little part fits so well. We said, okay, okay, here it is. And, and there it is in the middle. And then we hired a great old Jewish sound man from, from radio who showed up with a trunk of 78s and they had almost every kind of routine sound effect that you might encounter you know making uh, daily radio and so we auditioned a few uh uh different traffic acts well just sort of traffic and uh, one of them was from 48th Street, which you may know is or was the uh, center of uh, instruments of where, where for musical instruments, you went to 48th Street, particularly for guitars. And so we decided, OK, the 48th Street uh, traffic jam gets the job. And then we were looking for a steam hammer. And that was interesting because he had several. He had them far away, medium, close. Uh, and then there was one that was had this real flatulent quality that was just, that's the one. And so that's what went on the back end of that record, of, of that break. Right. Oh, I never realized it was that intricate. I mean, first off, so you're saying you couldn't just like Google sound effects and then download them and put them on the side. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It was all, it was all manual. I'm saying. It was all a la carte. <laughs> I know. Uh, um, I, I will so John, on this podcast, we're really obsessed with misheard lyrics. We like to hear what people got wrong. And I, there's this website. I love those. Me too. And um, I looked up ones for your songs. And Summer in the City had the most by far. Maybe it's because... Really? Yeah, and the, the two parts people always get wrong is that they don't know that you're saying wheezing like a, is it wheezing like a bus stop? Wheezing like a bus stop. People thought you were saying I'm a weasel at a bus stop. And I read that online. What did you mean by that when you said wheezing like a bus stop? Well, if you've ever, uh, you know, been at a New York bus stop, uh, until they get all electric, when the thing pulls up, makes this big uh you know it's the air brakes i guess oh okay okay it's it's the automatopoeia of the bus stop i'm okay i want to read you the other ones that i, I found online because they're, they're fun um somebody thought instead of saying uh, hotter than a match head you were saying hauling in a mattress yeah <laughs> you're saying hotter than a match head so people got that one wrong a, a lot too um but it's still in commercials today. So obviously, that song is still very popular. Uh, in Daydream, they miss Sleepy Bull Toad. That was a very hard one for folks to grab off the radio. So you I heard guess. that? How would, how would you find that out? People uh, because 
you know, I'd hear people sing it back to me and it, they'd have some substitute. Um, it, it's always funny. I mean, it was like uh, when I went to Japan and, and I was hearing uh, uh, so many guys who had the sort of onomatopoeia of it, but they didn't know the content. Right, Very they phonetically. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, okay, I wanna, I have a couple, I don't wanna take up too much of your time, because I know it's a Sunday, you're probably enjoying yourself. It's okay, I'm All right. fine. Thank you, My dog. wife's out of the house, the oh, dog perfect. is asleep, so, you know, really. <laughs> All right, good, because I, I have a bunch of questions I wanna get through. Uh, I don't really wanna go through Love and Spoonful breaking up, because that's not really a fun thing to cover, uh, but one thing I do want to ask you, because it seems recently that Paul McCartney has had like his, his mission to make sure people understand that him and John Lennon were really best friends. They just had a falling out eventually, but they were best friends. And I, I want to make sure I, I give you a second to say that you and Zali, even though towards the end that you guys were going in different directions musically, that you guys were buddies that had some of the best memories of your life together. And some of them were several years after the love and spoonful um yeah uh my relationship with zal is uh what really made the spoonful tick uh it's one of the reasons i couldn't say oh let's just get some more guys and keep going uh was that it was so much uh very often i'd write a song totally to in to uh entertain yanovsky so Yes, that that was part of it, and then yes, that he wanted he didn't like the sensitive singer songwriter guy that was sort of emerging as I was falling in love and doing stuff like that. So uh, 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 there certainly was a period where he was going, "Come on, uh, just give me a big fucking shuffle or something." So uh, uh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say I saw a video where you're playing darling be home soon and he's like lip singing looking at the camera i'm like mocking you while you're singing yeah 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 and and you know i went with it that, that happened several times and uh i was i understood <laughs> it's just hey i can't can't help changing a little bit but uh it was uh there was a a, a you know, and it wasn't that long, but there was a period where uh, he really was unhappy with what I was writing and stuff like that. Here's the thing, within three months of being out of the band, oh, by the way, we did a series of eight by 10 glossies in which the new guy is in the forefront. But if you look carefully in the trees behind, you'll see Yanovsky and he's there looking kind of dejected and sad. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was no. so, uh, you know, the, the, I was so amazed that the, the press of the time, they didn't get any of that humor. They, they, they you know, you, you're supposed to be angry at each other. And now the one guy goes solo and the other guy starts a band that doesn't make it. Uh, that's the way that goes. But um, in, in our case, within months, I was driving up to Gananoque uh, in Canada, 
to uh, spend some time with him and just sit on the couch and play. And then he was becoming a restaurateur of some note. Uh, it, it should not be ignored that he made, uh, made himself a restaurant called Shea Piggies that was so successful that it essentially birthed an entire kind of baby Greenwich Village in Kingston, Ontario, which was the, the bigger town next to Gananoque. Yeah, I think I read that. It, it, I don't know if it's still true that his daughter was running it for him. Yes, his that. daughter's still running it. And uh, in fact, uh, there was a point where Zali got impatient with his bread guy. This is Soyanovsky. He got impatient. Uh, something wasn't right. I don't know. The, the bread wasn't coming in right. So he went, okay, I'm buying a building and starting a bakery. And he did. And uh, Panchancho is a, <laughs> uh, what is it? It's, it's, now it's become all kinds of different breads and, and pastries and so on. Uh, but uh, it feeds the restaurant and also now has its own life. So oh, also worth mentioning is on the, how did Zal and John get along after the spoonful mm -hmm. uh, was that uh, I got a gig, uh, I'm sure as a result of Woodstock, um, at the Isle of Wight, which was the following summer, 1970. And uh, I did not know it, but once I got there, I realized that uh, Zalman was now uh, working with Chris Christopherson. And he did a set with Chris Christopherson. And I forget what the order was, but I went on and, and it, it, it's a story in itself because the promoters got very angry because the same thing happened that happened at Woodstock. The, you know, they were going, we're going to have Woodstock, but we're going to make a lot of money. And then, of course, the gates went down. So here come all the people. And the guys organizing it, are they just want to uh, do a tirade about these people on the microphone up in one center stage for like 25 minutes. And I'm backstage with Catherine going, I'm going to get killed. This is going to be horrible. So I go out, I do a set. And it, in fact, it really went very well. I think they needed a little uh, salve of some type or another. And I was providing that. And uh, I did my set. I got asked to do some more. I did some more. I went off. They wanted another encore. And at that point, I saw Zali having gotten out of his stage clothes. And uh, so I just, there are some photographs uh, that a gentleman now deceased uh, took that afternoon that really show the story. I mean, it shows me uh, kind of sitting there talking to Zali and we're talking out of the side of our mouths, like, well, we could do uh, jug band music. We could do, and we're sort of figuring out a little teeny setlet. And so that's what happened. We went back on and did a two-man version of a few Love and Spoonful tunes and uh, got away safely.
Wow. So everyone tried to pin it as some sort of big divide breakup, but you guys are already playing together two years later. It is the it is the cliched thing, and unfortunately, uh, too many reporters assume that what they assume might be true. Okay, so we mentioned Woodstock, and I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something I would love to ask you about. You have, I mean, every Woodstock story is crazy, but you have one of the most unbelievable because you didn't actually go there to perform. That's right. I I wasn't invited. Uh, I simply, you know, uh, uh, Paul Rothschild, the producer for Janis Joplin and and uh, and the Doors uh, and almost everything that came out of Elektra Records for a few years and all of my uh, solo albums was the guy who said to me, you know, there's this. this uh, concert that's going to happen in Woodstock. And it sounds like it's going to be really something. You you probably should go. And uh, by the time uh, it got close, of course, it had been moved from Woodstock. And on spec, I just went to the Albany airport, see if I could find a way to get closer. Turns out, the Lovin' Spoonful's first roadie, Schlepper, we called them in New York, uh, was loading a helicopter with instruments. Now, I'm looking out the window of the airport because they had windows that you could look out on the airport. <laughs> a little more intimate and, back then. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm, I realized, oh my gosh, it's... It's Walter Gundy, our our old pal. And I begin to gesticulate to try to get him. He does notice me uh, through the picture window and points to a nearby door to say, come down onto the tarmac, which I did. And with the, you know, (laughs) it's like the Trump helicopter interview (laughs) is going on as I'm saying, what about this? And he says, you're trying to get to Woodstock. I said, that's right. He goes, look, you got to get in this air helicopter because all of the roads are stuffed and stopped. Uh, there is no buses or public transport of any kind that's going to get you there. Get in the helicopter, which I did. And I got to see that amazing sight over it's actually the beginning of the real Woodstock movie uh, was you're over that site where you can't see any, any grass, no vegetation. It's all uh, sleeping bags and tents and people. So at that moment, were you like, man, I really wish I was performing at this? You know, it wasn't my first thought. Uh, I had a number of friends that I was going to be able to to say hi to. Uh, I, I, Joe Cocker, I never get to talk to, and I'm going, he's going to be there. And, you know, he's, a, he's such a wonderful, odd man. I'm sorry he's gone now, but uh, I really enjoyed his company. 
So uh, looking forward to that. I, I didn't really think about it. Remember, I, I didn't have an instrument. I think I might have had a thumb pick. That was as much of a <laughs> equipment as I had. So um, I enjoyed that first day, Friday, with a walk around the entire site. Uh, David Brown, the bass player for uh, uh, Santana. Santana and I circled the entire, it took all day. We circled the site and we saw lots of really interesting, you know, the, the beginnings of, uh, of hippie uh, commercialism, you know, guys who'd figured out that if we make 200 hash pipes, we're going to sell every one if we take it to this festival. So, uh, then, of course, Saturday came along, it rained, it stopped raining, it rained again. And by that time, I had been alternating between front of stage and getting behind the stage where I could watch uh, from behind. And uh, th there was a moment when uh, it, it had been raining and then it stopped again. And I was standing there really center stage with, uh, with uh, Chip Monk and, uh, and Michael. And uh, the two of them are talking. And they're going, yeah, well, you know what? We got we to gotta get somebody to do like, a, like somebody that can play uh, with an acoustic guitar and still hold them. That's what we need. And I'm, I'm shaking my head. Yeah, that's right. But I'm not looking side to side and when i do i realize they're both looking at me and i go guys I, I don't even have a guitar and i think it was michael that says i think you have a few minutes to go get one and so <laughs> jesus so i go downstairs and what luck timmy harden who of course i'd made an album or two or at least a, a lot of tunes with and done a lot of club work with him uh was uh reclining uh, underneath the stage in in the kind of a there was a you know you could call it a green room but it was plywood and uh i said tim uh can i borrow your harmony sovereign and he sure man He's not attached to instruments, by the way. Uh, that instrument faded into, we don't know whatever happened to it. Uh, but uh, so I ran upstairs. I was tuning as I'm running upstairs. It was dangerous. Uh, but indeed, another two minutes, I was on stage. Is that the biggest crowd you've ever performed for? Yes, it is. And yes, it is. And were you nervous at all? Did you even have time to be? You're just like, I'm a musician. I'll go play, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, the second, uh, uh, <laughs> the second option. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I was uh, too uh, fixated on what am I going to play? How you know with this guitar? 
you know, there's, there's things that you get to learn how to do on odd instruments that you realize, oh, I don't have an auto harp. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> so uh, there were things that, that I had to kind of try to figure out going up the stairs. But, and I think this might pertain to a lot of people who played, was we'd all played for 12 people. We'd all played for 40 people. We'd all played for 200 people. And really, what you're doing is not different, unless the crowd is maybe hostile or adversarial in some way that makes it hard to get over. This wasn't the case. This crowd, it, it, it really, it was like a basket house. Everybody was listening. Uh, uh, and and it it was very exciting it was a thing that i didn't expect to ever experience again but at the same time it was familiar it was familiar for all of us and i know crosby still smashed made the most of hey man we're so we're so disoriented and we haven't rehearsed and all of that stuff bullshit <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, anyway i thought they did a pretty good set um but uh i did i did tell them before they went up uh guys let them know you're wet just that why is that? Because now we are one. Now we're all one. Right? Oh, that's good. Yeah, that that humanizes them. I love that. Yeah. And okay, I I just have a couple more Woodstock questions. So, like, what I don't understand, we it's not like we had food trucks back then. Like, where did people eat and where did they sleep? Like, where did you sleep that night? Well, it was pretty. It was pretty interesting. Uh, the various options were <laughs> were pretty interesting. Um, uh, when I arrived, and I didn't mention this so far in our talk, um, I noticed. There was a yellow Volkswagen bus tent, eight by eight bus tent. And coincidentally, I had been living uh, in Los Angeles at that point. I'd been recently divorced, so I didn't have a, a real home. And I ended up uh, living in this bus tent, right, you know, on a friend's property. And uh, so I mentioned to chip monk i said oh you know uh if you put a if you put a a a box like a cardboard box in front of the tent and put a sign on it shoes in here you're going to end up with a lot less mud in that tent and i know you're trying to keep the the incredible string bands instruments you know those aren't planks those are you know those are real instruments that you know you, you really ruin one overnight so uh and uh chipmunk turned to me and he goes you're in charge of the tent just like that to me this is what was happening again and again at woodstock was 
a need would materialize and somebody knew what to do. Uh, and in the case of the food, uh, what they did was they got in a Volkswagen bus, drove down to Chinatown, purchased a Volkswagen bus full of brown rice and uh, whatever kind of kimchi or whatever you could sort of put in it to fluff it up a little bit. And so that is one of the major uh, reasons that there was food at Woodstock. And, and another was that uh, uh, folks were contributing. Uh, there was, uh, you know, water was materializing uh, out of, you know, and, and uh, there was like a, a truck that could give you a shower and you could get some water from that. But, you know, it was, the, some of the details were, were kind of complicated. I know people are always like, oh, I wish I could have gone to Woodstock. And then every time I read something about it, I'm like, mm, I wish I had like a day pass. And then I had you a helicopter. You could go home to a nice, <laughs> dude, maybe a nice Jewish hotel nearby. Yeah, go, go to the Borscht Belt and then stay there. That's right. You're there, man. You're right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, as a Jewish person, I know the Borscht Belt immediately. You know, it's where Shecky Green and all that more. Um, okay, not too many more questions. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I wanted to play a game with you called uh, Were They Nice? Because I know you worked in the studio with a lot of very legendary musicians, and I just want to know. Uh, if yeah. they were nice um you played harmonica on a Doors song was jim morrison nice yes uh in in my uh, limited experience there um uh, to, he, he uh he did his job that day um and uh this also brings up paul rothschild who as i said was my producer and later a year or so later the Doors producer. Well, he brought me in and his explanation was that, and now this is gonna sound strange to modern America because the Doors of course uh, are, are viewed as uh, you know, a heavenly uh, thing. And uh, what interest would they have in, uh, you know, a singer songwriter guy? Uh, well, what Paul was saying was that he thought Jim would behave more if I was there, his words. So my incentive was that playing bass was Lonnie Mack, the guy who did Memphis on the guitar. And if you were a guitar player, you wanted to learn that real bad. And so uh, I was already a fan and it was delightful to get a chance to, uh, to do that uh, with him as well. And, you know, uh, everybody was nice uh, on that session. You know, uh, I mean, uh, th those guys, those guys are, ter they're terrific guys. And I understand that the, the, the famous part of Morrison kind of came a little bit after the prime time. Uh, but um, like I say, he was nice. That's good. 
I can sleep better now. Uh, I know I know you also jammed with Jimi Hendrix on a Timothy Leary album. Was Jimi Hendrix nice? Jimi Hendrix, first of all, it's Jimmy James to me uh, because I met him that way uh, before he got a name change in England. And uh, uh, this was one of the most, the mildest, the most engaging guys uh, that I've ever met. He had tremendous facility uh, with uh, uh, engaging people. And uh, uh, remember this, uh, again, this, a lot of it was before visibility. And I also, you know, I, we were both at uh, the Isle of Wight, we were both at Woodstock and uh, they didn't really spend any time together at either of those things because, well, he's Jimi Hendrix. Um, but uh, uh, again, this, this was a very nice man and, and the, the tongue flicking, you know, devil man thing, that kind of, I guess, you know, it, it, it worked. But uh, I was delighted to find that uh, as time went on, Jimmy was beginning to drop a lot of that uh, set the guitar on fire stuff. Uh, and 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 get down to the incredible player that he he was that's great uh what i would give to have seen him at woodstock or monterey pop that's just i mean you had even you got to perform but just like bare minimum you had a back seat to go watch jimmy hendrix's most iconic performance i mean that's yeah awesome. while jimmy actually while jimmy did his famous iconic performance my brother the co-writer of uh, Summer in the City, and I were pushing a rent-a-car out of the mud. <laughs> and it just like, try to, you know, and it's the kind of thing where you, you push and then you have success and that makes you fall right down into the mud. You get up and you got to do it some more. And, and it was just so funny as, you know, because literally we're, we're uh, in this channel of mud that had once been a road and right above is the back of the stage and i can see a little bit of jimmy as he's playing the star spangled banner what if like the car was revving its engine and people couldn't hear jimmy too well because you were trying to push this van out of the mud oh it was a big yeah, it was a big uh situation there yeah it's a big you sound could, uh, certainly you can <laughs> certainly uh rev a car up and hey you think you're going to be louder than the those Jimmy amplifiers yeah, that's true. what did he have at that you know like four <laughs> four amplifiers with four 12s each i'm and sure you're, and you're doing little miss sunshine pushing a van out of the mud oh that's great um okay <laughs> I, I wanted to also ask you real quickly because this weekend is the rock and hall of fame inductions we're recording this sunday october 24th uh you were obviously inducted in 2000 and i like because it, maybe this makes me a pessimist uh i like to keep track of who's not in the rock and roll of fame and then get mad about it yeah, so, good 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 because we we share that i uh, yeah 
That's all I do is just keep, I mean, thank God you're in it, uh, but I get mad. About when I got mine, uh -huh. when I got mine, within a week, I'd given it to Johnny Johnson with a little, a little label, like a little white paper label on it that said, we know who you are. We know what you did. Who's Johnny Johnson? Ah, all of your favorite Chuck Berry records, with the exception of Johnny Be Good, I think that's one of the few that he's not on. You're hearing Chuck in the foreground, you know, doing the mama's little baby, but in the background, there's this pianist going, all of this wonderful polyrhythmic stuff, uh, you know, the boogie woogie can't you couldn't say it any better uh and uh, so uh johnny was also as he explained it well i i put some music to chuck's little poems that's called songwriting it's called <laughs> the you know Helping the lyricist, okay, yeah, but you're also writing music. So uh, it was a very long time before uh, people realized that that had been part of the equation uh, to all of that wonderful rock and roll magic that was Chuck Berry and Johnny Johnson. So you, you want Johnny Johnson in the Rock and Roll Fame as like an early influence is what, is what you're saying? Oh, uh, yes. And he got in within another year or two. Good. Okay. And gave me back my, he gave me back know. my little thing. Um, okay. I'm going to read you a list of people who aren't in it. And I, I want you to tell me who you think should most deserves to be in there and that list. Um, okay. The Guess Who, Graham Parsons, Willie Nelson, King Crimson, John Coltrane, Emerson Lake and Palmer, The Monkees, The Spinners, Dolly Parton, Three Dog Night. Paul Revere and the Raiders and Steppenwolf. Pretty, pretty much everybody but monkeys. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, everybody you mentioned, so so good. You know, really, so 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 much to contribute. I uh, I became uh, a little bit fixated uh, in this last week over the fact that Jim Queskin of Jim Queskin's Jug Band. And I think the Jim Queskin Jug Band should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if you're talking about influences. They just were so much a part of the future. And it witnessed the fact that The Spoonful, um, The Grateful Dead, um, uh, and most folk bands started as jug bands because when you say it's a jug band now you don't have to be too good you can be a a, a learner you know and so uh, yeah so uh yeah jim queskin's jug band that's a major error you heard him people put him in the hall of fame start tweeting it okay i, I have two more questions that's it uh because i didn't get to this one 
um, the name Love and Spoonful. Some people think it's about drugs, but then I think I read it's a it's a song by John Hurt. So which one is it? It's a song by John Hurt. I love my baby by the Love and Spoonful. So the song is I love my baby. I woke by up this morning mm -hmm. thinking about my brown, looking for my baby. She ain't nowhere around. By the loving spoonful, by the loving spoonful, I love my baby. By the loving spoonful, so uh, and uh, it, the loving spoonful would really delight when um, radio personalities would ask us, you know, what is what is the meaning, and give them a, a big friendly grin and say, "Cunnilingus." No, no way! Did you really? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> That's not a bad word. No, I mean, you can say that on radio. Yeah, no, it's scientific. <laughs> Why not? I, um, did you ever tell, like, did, did John Hurt, did you ever tell him that I got it from you? I think he knew. Uh, because, I mean, remember, I'd sit at the side of his stage any chance I got. I lived six blocks from the Gaslight Cafe, and that was that was the place. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. That That's was, yeah. They, okay. Um, I, I want to make sure we, we end on this. You have a new album out with Arlen Roth, where you're exploring some of the songs from The Spoonful with new arrangements a lot of them instrumental some of them you have from the mona lisa sisters you sing darling be home soon on there um what was it like for you to re-explore these songs 50 years later well first of all i am delighted uh, uh, to to talk about it because this was another unintentional thing that worked better than i could have ever imagined uh arlen and i have probably known each other 40 years you know we're both occasional accompanists as well as uh you know maybe the guy under the spotlight sometimes but but also you know he's accompanied uh paul simon and and, and marty garfunkel and then both of them together and um all, all kinds of other stuff he's uh, uh, put together some wonderful uh teach tapes uh, uh, you know, more or less, I guess, starting in the 80s. I don't know when he started it. But so Arlen and I were already pals, and we'd end up on stages, uh, you know, uh, doing one thing or another, a benefit of some kind. And uh, one time that we were uh, on a visit here in Woodstock, uh, I was complimenting him on a series of projects that he had done instrumental versions of usually pop material uh he would uh um put these albums together and they'd be something like acoustic rolling stones we do a lot of big rolling stones tunes but you know with, with uh his own skills and uh, so I was just uh, having heard these things and especially having, we were having dinner, Catherine and I were listening to these CDs. And I said, you know, this, it's the best dinner music ever. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you've done like six of these, right? And he goes, he goes right past the question. He goes, and you've never done this. I said, you mean, 
said, you know, instrumental versions of the spoonful material. I said, you know, I was always afraid because those, those records came out good. Uh, you know, Eric Jacobson was no slouch. And he could producer. stand right up there with the Beatles guys. And, you know, he, he, he knew what he was doing. You, you tried something new together. And so uh, the songs have new meaning for you 50 years later when you were playing them? They were great fun to do. As uh, Arlen said, hey, we'd already have half the arrangements licked. Because uh, we really did them like a two-guitar act, kind of. It really wasn't, you know, me accompanying him or vice versa. It was, we put it together like a, like a duo. And then we brought in Ira Coleman, a wonderful virtuoso bass player, and uh, Eric Parker, who's, you know, he was Joe. I already loved him because he'd been Joe Cocker's drummer. And uh, if he can make Cocker happy, that's big. Uh, so uh, he was the drummer. And I, as, as you mentioned, uh, I had made a friendship with uh, two twins from Austria who had uh, become Beatles fanatics at about seven or eight years old and began uh, copying Beatles tunes and and of course they're learning how to play instruments in the process. Um, I heard them on and somebody sent me an email and said, "How do you like this version of Daydream?" And it was them doing Daydream with a ukulele and a guitar, and it was just the cutest thing on God's earth. And so I wrote back and I said, "Look, this is uh, this is not to be joked about. This." is sibling harmony. You can't beat this. And I, I went on for a while longer. Well, I guess the guy who sent it to me sent my note to the twins. And they wrote back to me saying, oh, we're delighted that you liked our thing. That was when we were like younger, but we're still playing music and we'd love it if you'd play on something. And I said, yes. And I, I did it. And then there were two or three more things they were doing that I played harmonica on. And then there was a point at which they called me and said, you know, we can't imagine how we could do a video of this tune that you did the most recent overdub on without having you. So would it be too crazy to persuade you to come to Manchester. <laughs> so I get on a I get on a plane that stops in in uh, Iceland. And it's, it's remarkably fast, by the way, over the top. Uh, and I'm I'm there I'm in Manchester. And I had a lovely time with them. Uh, that's, a, that's a half hour story in itself, which I'll skip for the moment. But uh, at the end, they were saying, well, now, you know, we really think we've got three different things. And now here's the fourth. So we have to pay you. I said, well, how about this? Let's call this an international musical exchange. And no money will change hands. But uh, 
when I get a good idea, and this was really before me and Arlen had gotten a good idea, I said, if I get a good idea, I'm going to use you guys as, as a harmony singers because it's crazy good. And uh, so that was the way that went down. And then when the project came through, I called them up. And, you know, their father is the foremost producer in Vienna. I mean, he's, he's the shit. So uh, uh, everything they mailed us was perfect. I mean, it was so good. So that's that's how uh the musical exchange went there uh and the other uh, little last minute things that came available was that the, i was still in woodstock and we were doing this we did the whole project facing each other and the whole reason that i asked that we could do this kind of an idea on the cover was that all of a sudden COVID hits and we have to stop playing face to face. Luckily, we had completed all of our basic tracks with the important four people. And uh, so now it was just uh, of, beside the twins. Um, uh, Jeff Muldor showed up in town. Uh, he had taken a, uh, an apartment in the adjoining town. I called him in and he did some, by the way, you probably don't know who Jeff Muldor is. Mm -hmm. And he is one of the most amazing vocalists I think you'll ever run into. And a member of who? The Jim Queskin Judd Band. Of course. So, and of course, yeah. And who was I imitating on What a Day for a Daydream? Jeff Muldor. I'm trying to sound like him because he had this old timey quality about his voice. Um, and uh, so uh, he happily came in and did a, an overdub uh, for me, or actually, we did uh, that was some sort of co singing. He was tenoring me. And uh, so that happened. And then it wasn't very many weeks later that Maria Maldor came to town to do a gig. And uh, I always go over to her gigs and, and play uh, John Hurt tunes with her. And uh, so we were in the process of doing that when I realized, ooh, I could draft her for stories we could tell. And it'd be very real and uh, so that's exactly what happened and uh and uh, maria moldor maria Dalmato to me uh sh showed up and did a great uh, just a great uh sort of co-sing on stories we could tell i've really enjoyed the album i'm so glad that you revisited the songs and they're perfect dinner music, but then also just perfect to listen to on a drive. They just sound nice, you know, it's because you guys are good time music. That's what Love and Spoonful is. And this album is good time music, too. Yes, indeed. And of course, it uh, Arlen's skills, which haven't been talked about much in, in this time, uh, really made it so exceptional. And one reason was that as a young Jewish 
kid, he see, he said, I, I was so infatuated with Yanovsky because he was playing this sort of country music, blues, hybrid thing that was sort of where I wanted to get to. And uh, so he had so much of Yanovsky memorized and he wouldn't just do it in the same place. Sometimes he'd move it to a new place, but there's that lick you recognize. And that was, that's one of his uh, skills. That's so funny you say that because uh, this morning I have a bunch of Spoonful songs on vinyl and on the back of Daydream, the album, you have a letter from like a 16 year old girl that was written to you. And it says, yes, uh, yes. It's, it says Steve, Joe, John and the Jewish kid. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you remember yeah. that? Um, <laughs> We had such a wonderful publicity agent who, who eventually, uh, I think he became like the one of the vice presidents of uh, not Chanel, but an enormous, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and and he he wrote so many cool album jackets for us it you know really the spoonfuls album jackets that was always him i didn't know that and i i saw that and i loved that so I, i'm glad that jewish musicians were inspired by him as well um yeah a lot of people are inspired by you uh john sebastian thank you for taking time to talk to us i really appreciate uh, it I certainly have enjoyed it, and uh, I hope you guys continue your your uh, musical archaeology. <laughs> Thank you, John Sebastian. <laughs> I uh, so I I'm somebody who just grew up loving the '60s and '70s, and always felt like a weird person that my classmates were listening to rap, and I wanted to talk about Engelbert Humperdinck. And, <laughs> <laughs> And then I started this podcast. I, I started this podcast to find other people like me who also just want to talk about older music and movies. So that's where this podcast comes in. Mm -hmm.